Welcome back to Gamcast. It's Marty Bent here. Very excited for this conversation, sitting down with a prolific thinker in the in the fossil fuel space, Alex Epstein, author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, and like I was just describing, the last episode we had with a gentleman by the name of, of Wes Selner, um, who's, who's you know, working on well pads and has worked throughout the whole stack in oil and gas, predominantly in the Bakken up in North Dakota. Part, a particular part of that conversation we had towards the end of the episode was the quality of jobs produced by the oil and gas industry compared to uh, green energy tech in that, that sector. And as the Biden administration is trying to force a transition to, to green energy um, <laughs> uh, generation, I think it's important to sort of highlight the, the difference between quality of jobs produced in the oil and gas industry compared to a green tech industry. Yeah, so I've written uh, at least as of this recording now, I don't know when this will be out, but on, as of now, it's if you go to my Twitter page, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein, it's, it's my pinned tweet. I have this thing on the green energy jobs. Uh, so the basic idea is, I mean, if you think about, I think of it as productive job opportunities. So what leads to that fundamentally in terms of, and, and I'm thinking of economy wide, you want to live in a world where there are lots of productive job opportunities where you can get paid well. That's very understandable motivation. You have to realize, what does that depend on? Well, one is there have to be productive jobs. That is jobs that produce, you're producing more value than they're paying you, and that that is a lot of value. So for example, I calculated, my, my team calculated you know, an oil and gas extraction worker. So someone who's working in one way or another on getting oil and gas out of the ground, on average, they're producing at today's oil prices $2 million worth of value a person. You think, okay, if you're a company and somebody can produce $2 million worth of value, or they can at least contribute to that. Okay, then yeah, you can pay them a lot of money. Whereas if they're installing solar panels, that's not nearly as much value. And in fact, the solar panels, they need to be subsidized and they're subsidized in all sorts of ways people don't get because the solar generation gets paid as if it's reliable, even though it's unreliable. And then it gets, the taxpayers are paying for it in all kinds of ways. So there's just nothing, the, the key thing that's going on is the oil and gas extraction worker is generating a lot of value. So it can be profitable to pay them a lot of money. Whereas it's, it's not even profitable to pay the solar worker a smaller amount of money. Or one other thing we studied was if you look at electricity generation. So if you look at the ratio of electricity generated to number of people involved, uh, fossil fuels are nine times more productive than solar and wind. So a fossil fuel electricity generation worker is generating nine times as much electricity, plus that electricity is reliable. It's available when we need it in the quantities we need it. So that should point to, okay, yeah, obviously this is going to be a source of much more productive jobs in general, but then you layer on top of that, the jobs, to have productive jobs in a given place, you need to have comparative advantage in that place. That is, it needs to be more productive to produce the things where you are than it is somewhere else. Well, for various reasons, it's far more uh, efficient to produce green energy in China. And there's a whole bunch of good reasons, like vices that they have in terms of low human rights and environmental standards, and then also virtues. They're much more pro-mining and pro-industry than we are, I think, in good ways. But in any case, there is nothing resembling uh, competitiveness in terms of, quote, green energy here, which isn't even productive in the first place. So we are like, we have a comparative disadvantage at something unproductive 
So how is that going to compare productive jobs to a highly productive thing we have a comparative advantage at? And the answer is it is not. And it is just a total fraud to claim that these green jobs are some huge productive opportunity versus at best what they will be is the gigantic welfare work scheme wherein the rest of the country pays enormous amounts of money to give people make work doing something unproductive, but then that drives up our energy prices, which hurts every American industry and every American consumer. So that's the, the best case scenario is that in the name of, for this scheme is that in the name of creating these fake jobs, we screw everyone else and deprive them of many more jobs, including of course the productive fossil fuel jobs. Yeah, and like you said, there's, it's complete an object fraud because they'll use they'll they'll lump the the green energy jobs in with the oil jobs and and basically use the the average of the the uh, salaries across the energy sector and say hey we're going to create new energy jobs but mm-hmm. they're not, not communicating that <laughs> the average is being pulled up heavily by the oil and gas jobs and, and the wages made there um, so you're sort of transitioning away from those high earning jobs to to lower non productive jobs too. And I would just say one, one thing about this, because when you're looking at movements, you know, different movements are going to make sets of claims. So the, if you look at sort of the anti-fossil fuel movement, there's a series of claims about climate catastrophe and about renew, what you can call renewable uh, replacement. So the idea that, oh, well, fossil fuels can be replaced with renewables. And the climate catastrophe, we may get into that. I'm totally happy to. But that can be a harder thing to evaluate because it involves sophisticated climate science and you may not be confident in your ability to evaluate that. And maybe for good reasons, you're not confident and it can be hard to sort through. But when you look at something like the green jobs and you see just a totally fraudulent claim being made and they're not being a mass protest by people in the movement, it shows that you have a movement that is very willing to distort reality to achieve its goals. So the fact that they're making these green jobs claims and they're being put forward as as logical. In fact, Twitter, Joe Biden made this claim about jobs and Twitter put it as science in my Twitter feed. And I didn't even follow Joe Biden. I don't know if I do yet, but I didn't even follow him. And at the top of my Twitter feed, it said science, Joe Biden, when I think of climate, I think jobs. So it'd be one thing to say, you know, we have a climate catastrophe. We need to take dire actions. It's going to be terrible for us to force all these less cost-effective forms of energy, but it'll be worth it because we'll lower emissions. Like that would be a coherent view, but to say, oh no, we're going to be drowning in amazing green jobs by doing something that's less productive that takes place overwhelmingly in China. That is, that shows the movement is very willing to distort reality. And you can expect similar distortions are, are taking place with the other elements of their narrative. I agree. Uh, just on a heuristic basis, you can you can move it from the the job argument to climate catastrophe, which I do want to get to. But I think, and this is something I've been coming more uh, attuned to in recent months, particularly because Great American Mining we use stranded waste gas as our energy source to mine Bitcoin. Yeah, and, that's a cool idea, by the way. We'll, we'll get into that as well. Thank you. Um, but we've we've been getting attacked. So like we've been. And we work closely with the wheel and gas industry, and we've been learning a lot about the the narrative battles that they've been fighting. Obviously, I've been aware of it as an American citizen has been forced down my throat, but now I'm more intimately aware of of actually what's going on and, and mm-hmm. how all this is working. And in Bitcoin itself, just take out the uh, what we're doing at Great American Mining using gas as a source for electricity. Uh, people hate Bitcoin because they view it as this like ultra 
capitalistic sort of endeavor. And I think it's becoming very clear to me that these people, especially people that are fighting us for uh, using natural gas to mine Bitcoin, they actually don't care about the environment. They care about authoritarian control, bringing their worldview, which tends to, to be like communistic and socialist uh, to the world. And they, they see the success of Bitcoin and particularly Bitcoin mining via natural gas as, as a runaway from their ability to bring that ideal to fruition. I mean, one way to think of it is, you know, many, many movements are named exactly the opposite of what they are. And so we could call the progressive movement is, is very much a regressive movement, particularly today. And so if you think about what are two of the main elements of progress, they are intelligent environmental impact and then evolution of technology. And so you can see with just with the whole opposition to environmental impact as such, so to talk about being green, minimizing our impact in this very global way, like that's an anti-progress idea because the way we, prog we progress is we intelligently impact nature, we develop. If you wanna live in an undeveloped place, go to North Korea and see what that's like. That is not a good environment for human beings. To have a good human environment, we need to massively develop our environment and that means lots of energy powering lots of machines. But then with Bitcoin, you've got this other element, which you also see in the opposition to nuclear, which may seem incomprehensible because why do people oppose nuclear who say CO2 is the world's biggest problem? And part of it is they think of it as having impact, but particularly in this kind of, it's an evolutionary impact. They'll say, oh my gosh, the waste is terrible. And if you look at the waste, like the waste is pretty easy to deal with. There are a lot of things a lot more dangerous than nuclear waste, but people are offended that we're creating this new form of waste and it'll be around a long time. They just think we don't have a right to do it. And with Bitcoin, I think there's this element of like, hey, it's wrong for us to do it. Like, you shouldn't have a digital currency. Like, why, you know, versus from like a genuinely progressive thing. When I heard of Bitcoin, you know, I wish I didn't have any money when I heard of it, but I, I always thought since 2011, this is a great idea. I mean, I'm always in favor of gold. I mean, I much favor gold to somebody else can just dictatorial multiply the money. Actually, give me, give me three seconds. I want to show you something. Sure thing. Do you know what this is? I didn't even, I just saw it. I didn't even realize it would come in handy. Do you know what this is? We've got a hundred trillion dollars. This is a Zimbabwe hundred trillion dollar bill. So this could allegedly pay for the Green New Deal, um, which that's a whole ridiculous thing. Anyway, that I, like something that destroys your economy, you can put a cost on it. But the, yeah, so, you know, it's just interesting how there's this regressive element where it's like impacting our environment bad is bad and new things uh, are bad. And it's not just, oh, there's a negative, it's being done the wrong way, so we should do it better. It's just like this, this total resistance. Like one more example is with nuclear. People don't just say, oh, I don't like the particular nuclear reactor they used in one place. It's just we shouldn't be pursuing, we shouldn't be using the immense power of the atom at all to generate energy ever. So that is, the, if the, you want a regressive stance, that's the ultimate one. Yeah. And like for Bitcoin particularly, like it, it, but the irony is so glaringly like, it like hurts how ironic the situation is Bitcoin as an industry, Bitcoin mining as an industry. I think like I can say it like number one, top of the list of any industry in the world in terms of penetration of renewables as, as the source of, of electricity generation. Yeah. It's a potential place where they could actually be cost effective. Yeah. And, and for some reason, the climate hysterics attack Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining specifically, even though it is achieving <laughs> the goal 
they want to bring to fruition. That's what like starts. This is just recent. So what's your explanation of that? Again, I I don't think they care about the environment. I think they care about control and, and, and basically telling people how to live their lives. I think they're using environmentalism as a, a sort of facade to Trojan horse their way into control. Well, it's, it's interesting because I think that I'd think of it more as like they definitely don't care about renewables as a means to generating a lot of energy for a lot of people. I think they advocate renewables uh, to mask the fact that they want people to use very little energy. Because you think about the environmentalist movement, it's definitely not about having a good human environment. Like that's because if you, if you, if you believe that, you'd have to at least acknowledge what fossil fuels have done so far is amazing overall, even if you're worried about the future. So it's not about a human environment. It's about the environment in the sense of wilderness, in the sense of an unimpacted planet. And so if you're in favor of an unimpacted planet, you can't be in favor of energy, of a lot of energy, because we what do we use energy to do? We use it to power machines that impact the planet in one way or another. So the very purpose of energy is impact. So the idea of non-impacting energy is a contradiction in terms. But if they said like Michael Moore sort of does in his Planet of the Humans thing, like, oh, we shouldn't be using any energy or we should drastically reduce, that doesn't go over too well. So instead they promote imaginary energy. They take something that doesn't work at all or doesn't work on any large scale and they say, oh, we support it. Like they did that with natural gas before natural gas was cost-effective at scale in a lot of ways. And now they hate natural gas. And even with nuclear, like they initially supported it and then it was pretty practical. So then they, they opposed it. And that's, so I think of it as it, it is a, at least the, there's a power element, but also there is this religious element of it's wrong for us to impact the planet. It's a very primitive kind of religion. And I think that does definitely animate, uh, animate the leaders. And that explains like why they, they support renewables. But if you find a cost-effective way to use renewables, they're not, they don't say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. We finally may- turn these scraps into value somewhere. They're like, no, we're using too much energy. You shouldn't be doing this. And then eventually they'll point out, oh, the renewables take up a lot of space. You have to do way more mining for them because the energy they're using is very dilute. Uh, they have to be backed up by the reliables, all these, you know, all these points that I make. And of course, they take fossil fuels like you know, Vaclav Smil or Vashlav Smil, Bill Gates' favorite energy guy, like he likes to say, you know, the wind turbine is the ultimate embodiment of fossil fuels. Like the blades are made of fossil fuels and the steel uses coal, et cetera. So once what happens is they, they pretend to support green energy or renewable energy, but it's really just as long as it's imaginary. And then if it's any, there's any prospect of working, then they point out all the obvious ways in which it impacts things, which they denied before, to pretend that they supported it. So that's why it's not at all surprising to me. Once you walk through like these points and come to understand uh, the contradictions and the, the gulp, goalposts moving throughout this whole environmental movement over time or decades, right? Like Maldives are supposed to be under the water in the 80s. Yeah. Like uh, we were supposed to have 3 billion deaths by 2020 climate caused deaths but I, I was watching one. Year I think recently. a billion, a billion, a billion. But, but according to it's interesting, I, and I want to hear the rest of what you're saying, but it's interesting. This is John Holdren who made this prediction in the mid eighties and then he became Obama's chief science advisor. So one thing is you have, it's not just that older generations of people like made extreme things and then they were weeded out. It's like they were elevated. So that's another dynamic of like, how is that? But sorry, continue. Cause I'm really interested in what you're no, saying. It's like how, if anybody sits down and actually studies the subject and is a logical thinking human being, maybe most people aren't, but hopefully there's enough of us out there 
Like how, how does this movement gotten so popular to the point where you have people cheering on the shutdown of the Keystone pipeline, the, uh, f- the fa- ban on fracking on federal lands and uh, this movement towards non-productive green jobs. Like how has it gotten so loud? Well, there's a couple dimensions. So one is just, if you look at the strategy of you know, the environmental movement, I call it the anti-impact movement or the anti-human impact movement. Cause it's not, it's not at all about a good environment from our perspective. It's about, again, it's, it's about environment in the sense of wilderness or unimpacted nature. So the anti-impact movement. So part of it is they very, you know, the leaders of it were very clever and that they really infiltrated the schools a lot. And, you know, when you infiltrate the schools and that includes the universities, you just, it just, you just saturate the world with your perspective. And, uh, and by perspective, I think there are two key elements of the perspective to get when I talk about the anti-impact movement or religion, they have a, I would call a framework. That's like the starting point that most of us have adopted. And I, I boil it down to two things. One is the idea that impacting nature is morally wrong. So we shouldn't be impacting the earth. And you can see this in the whole green movement. Like everyone is celebrating. We're not impacting. We're not impacting. But like, again, human beings survive via intelligent impact. So you want to maximize your intelligent impacts and you want to minimize your anti-human impacts, but you don't want to minimize impact. That's, that's crazy. Uh, but it's, it's, so it's this idea, it's intrinsically wrong. So in effect, we have this religion that says thou shalt not impact nature. And that's like the core commandment of it. And then to sort of, so that that goes down easy and seems scientific, they have the second idea, which I call the delicate nurture assumption, which is that nature is a delicate balance and any impact we have is going to cause it to destruct and us to destruct with it. You can see this with climate. People assume if we have an impact on climate, which I believe we do, that it's A, going to be mostly negative, and B, it's going to be negative to the point of catastrophic. And you can see this throughout the history of these different predictions. So for instance, we're going to run out of resources. We're going to pollute our environment to the point that the air and water are just totally uh, you know, unlivable around. And then the climate, you know, first it's going to become catastrophically cold, then it's going to become catastrophically warm. And in both cases, if you look at the details, they're saying, oh, it's going to be drought. It's going to be flood. Like the same negative consequences came from cold and warm in terms of like bad, bad stuff. So you can just see there's always this assumption that our impact is not just going to cause some manageable issue that we need to deal with, but it is going to cause an overwhelming catastrophe that justifies getting rid of the source of the impact. And I think that that's coming from what I call this anti-impact framework of it's basically impact on nature is intrinsically immoral and it's inevitably self-destructive because it it destroys the delicate balance. And I think that, that to me, the combination of having that whole framework and then portraying all these narratives that, that reinforce it and then doing that in the schools, it's this very formidable thing. So that may seem depressing, but at the same time, I find that when I explain these issues, it's not too hard to dislodge. Like once people understand, oh, wait, I'm accepting this moral idea that doesn't make any sense. And I'm accepting this premise about how the way the world works, it doesn't make any sense. It's not true. And if you realize, oh, wait, I can look at the world in a different way. I can look at it from what I call a human flourishing perspective. So we want a world that's maximally conducive to human flourishing, which means a beautiful planet. And, you know, we have positive, we have a relationship with the rest of nature that benefits us. It's not a whole parking lot. It's not polluted all over the place, Uh, but we are thinking about it as we want a beautiful, wonderful earth for humans. If you have that perspective on the planet, and then you have the perspective, nature's not a delicate nurture. It's, it's wild potential. It has amazing potential, but we need to, we need to actualize that potential by impacting it very, 
significantly and productively. Like once you get those and you see, oh, at the other side is just this crazy primitive religion dressed up in modern terms. I think that helps a lot. And then it, the more people see, oh, wait, I'm looking at this through the wrong framework, then they'll take something like climate and they'll they'll question this idea of climate catastrophe. And in particular, they'll, they will get rid of this equation of climate change or climate impact on the one hand and then climate catastrophe, because that's really what's going on. Everyone is saying, oh, well, we impact the climate, therefore we shouldn't use fossil fuels. It's like, wait a second, you don't even, is the impact bad? Is it catastrophic? Is it so catastrophic that it outweighs all the benefits to our world of using fossil fuels? And once you start to look into it, and we can go into detail, but there's just nothing resembling that. Like, see, it just from a historical perspective, CO2 levels are super low. They're not unprecedented. Temperatures are low. We will, I mean, huge plant growth comes from CO2. We'll probably be better off overall with warmer temperatures. But even if we're not, like the negatives are nothing on the order of the negatives of getting rid of fossil fuels. There's no, there's no plausibility of catastrophe once you get off this anti-impact religion. Well, let's jump into it, the climate okay. catastrophe, because from what sure. I hear, the science has proven that that everything's going to be under underwater and everybody's going to die. Like, right. The, the science is telling us that. Are we denying science here? This is it's interesting. I, I mean, I used this example of green jobs earlier, as this is a case where there's clear, pretty clearly, if you look into it for 10 minutes, there's clearly fraud going on and, and you can... That, that indicates something about the movement. Uh, you can look at this within, within the climate issue. There's certain things that are technical and hard to validate for yourself, but there are other things that are clearly wrong with it that can indicate there's something, there's something off here. So one is just the propaganda to children and like the getting children to say this, you know, like, oh, you telling this to children and telling them to take it on faith and scaring the hell out of them. Like there's something very, very off with that. But also in the, the kind of statement you made, you know, scientists say, what did you say? We're like, we're all going to be underwater. So what you notice is there's a lot of ambiguity about who the scientists are. And especially there's a lot of ambiguity about what they say. So you'll often hear it's 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is real. And it's usually, or sometimes a little more technically, it's climate change is the main cause of global warming. And so if you take that literally, what that means is that human activities cause 50% or more of the one degree Celsius warming of the last 170 years since the beginning of industrialization in most places. Like, okay, so half, it caused at least half of a one degree rise. And again, the context here is the earth is, um, you know, something like 12 degrees Celsius, 15 degree, 25 degrees Fahrenheit uh, cooler than it has been at many of its most prolific uh, like life-giving periods. So like one degree temperature in and of itself, there's nothing to really fear about that. So how could you get from that to even climate impact is net negative? Because you'd really have to, if you're looking, if you're including in the impact, like the plant growth, we know for sure that plant growth has massively increased around the world particularly in places where we have had no other activity. So it's, it's purely coming from the fertilization of the atmosphere via CO2. So it's a big burden of showing that, that 50, that 97%, if they could show that, believe that half of a one degree of warming was caused by humans, that wouldn't even be enough to show that humans net impact on climate 
the, the climate itself is net negative, but then you would have to add on to that. Well, even if it impacted the climate itself in some net negative way, what about the ability we have to protect ourselves from climate when we have all this energy from fossil fuels? And I've kind of popularized the statistic that climate related disaster deaths, so deaths from floods and storms and heat and cold, like those are down 98% over the last century. So this thing that's supposedly a problem, you know, we're supposed to have 1 billion climate deaths by 2020, according to John Holdren, uh, but the, you know, any given year, we have between 5,000 and 20,000 climate deaths now, and adjusted for population in the 30s, you had several years where it was 10 million. So climate has become safer than ever. So like the, the, the point here, though, is so you might not know all those details, but you should be suspicious if somebody says something like climate change is real or most of one degree warming was caused by this. And then they're going from that to there's a catastrophe and going from that to we need to get rid of fossil fuels and going that from that to we need to specifically replace it with solar and wind, which are like unreliable sources of energy. And you can, this is in philosophy, that's called the fallacy of equivocation. So you're using the same thing to mean many different things. So they're using climate change as real to mean both there is some warming that we are impacting to we need to outlaw fossil fuels and replace them with renewables. And whenever you see that degree of equivocation, somebody's trying to put something over on you. And what it turns out is they're putting over, what they wanna do is they wanna jump from the fact that we do impact climate, which I, I do believe is a factor, at least I think it's very, very likely that, that our CO2 emissions impact climate to fossil fuels are bad. And that that doesn't follow at all. That's like if you showed that a, you know an antibiotic had a side effect to one in 10 million people, that antibiotics would be bad. No, you have to always look at way the benefits and the side effects. And when you do that with fossil fuels, they're positive. So that's how you can have the scient scientists saying one thing about the side effects of fossil fuels and them falsely extrapolating from that or falsely implying, oh, fossil fuels are bad. But you notice this one more thing is you notice the scientists, most scientists don't stand up against this, even though in private, most of them know there's a lot of distortion and overstatement and bad reasoning. And I think it's because they buy into this anti-impact religion significantly. So their view, they've never been taught about the value of energy. They've never been taught that it's actually really good for us to impact the planet. So they, they have this view that, yeah, it is bad that we're impacting the planet with CO2. And so why are they going to stand up if they think, yeah, it's intrinsically wrong for us to impact the planet? Whereas from a human flourishing perspective, you're like, wow, we're, fossil fuels are the greatest deal ever. Like they increase our life. They, they allow us to, the main thing is they allow us to use machines to produce all this value that, and I mentioned it protects us from climate, it, including it keeps us warm when it's hot, when it's freezing, it keeps us cool when it's hot. It you know allows babies to live in incubators. It allows one man to produce 700, 700 times more food than a man could before by using like all the ways in which you, we use machines that's made possible by fossil fuels, which are the only thing that allow billions of people in thousands of places to get low cost, reliable energy for all their needs. So that's, that's a lot, but that is, yeah, that, that's my view of why, how the scientists say X is just a total distortion if it's, if it's being used to say anything negative about fossil fuels, let alone positive about solar and wind. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all like, a, I don't want to say psyop, but it is like somewhat of a psyop, right? Like they're, they're trying to control people's psychological view of a particular issue. And then again, like it's so easy to poke holes in like, all right, you want to transition to this green economy with build on this green tech. 
and I, I posited this to um, what I am now claiming a climate hysteric over the weekend. I said, all right, like if we, if we stopped all fossil fuel production tomorrow and you wanted to bring your green tech revolution to fruition, like, would that even be possible? How many fossil fuel needed to build out the infrastructure and the technologies necessary to, to create that power generation that you so desperate, desperately want? What did they say? He basically said, uh, well, there's ways we, we will. Yes, we will consume fuels, but only to create this tech, like in a few other things. Like so you're going to force everybody um, using fuels in cars and uh, natural gas to heat their homes to stop doing that. But we will use it to build out this infrastructure, which is just a completely nonsensical. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't focus so much. I mean, there's this kind of so there are there are a lot of really irrational things about the opposite position that I'm I'm pointing out, and I'll probably point out more of them. Uh, but I think that one mistake sometimes people on what I view as the right side of things make is they'll they'll caricature the position. So some of the smarter people, you know, their view won't be get rid of all fossil fuels tomorrow, but it'll be yeah, we got to use a ton of fossil fuels to make the green energy, but. To, to then go back on that a little bit, they don't really point that out. They're not very forthright about that at all, about just how dependent these renewables, I call them unreliables, are on fossil fuels. Because if you, the more you acknowledge the reality of how these things are produced, the more you start to realize that none of these things are anywhere near fossil fuels in their ability to, to power civilization. So if you just think about why is there not one place in the world where solar panels are being used overwhelmingly to make solar panels or wind turbines are being used to make wind. Like, why is that true? Nowhere. It's not just, oh, there are eight pilot projects that Elon Musk set up and they're working great. And it's just a matter of, we got to give him more money. Like, it's not that they're working on some scale. They don't work anywhere at all. And, And we're talking about getting rid of fossil fuels in 30 years. So what's going on? And you look at just in detail, okay, well, why aren't they used? Well, it turns out that for mobility, like mobile energy, which you need for things like mining um, and transportation, long distances and cargo ships and that kind of thing, like oil is totally unrivaled today because it has such a high, what's called energy density, the amount of energy that's stored in a small space and, and, you know, small amount of mass. And that's so important because when you're dealing with mobility, you have to take your fuel with you. So if you have a giant battery, you know, let alone like a wind turbine on something, that's not going to, that won't carry you nearly as, as, uh, as far. So you start to realize, okay, that's why they're not mining for the solar panels using solar. And there's of course the reliability. And then you start to think, oh, well, it's also the reliability issues. And so when you have to, when you, when you're getting electricity from solar, you're never getting it from solar. You're getting it from solar plus the whole backup system that has to be tied to solar. That's actually doing most of the work. So the cost of solar and the cost of solar, it's the cost of the unreliable solar infrastructure plus the reliable gas, coal, nuclear, whatever, or hydro infrastructure. So you start to realize that. So there's the mobility doesn't work even on electricity. It's not actually cost-effective. And then you look at, well, a lot of these things involve very high temperatures and we overwhelmingly generate those using fossil fuels. And why is that? Well, often to, to burn the fossil fuel directly gives you much higher value at lower cost than it does to burn the fossil fuel, to turn it into electricity, to then turn that into really high amount of heat. Like that doesn't work very well. And for anything else that generates electricity, it, using elect, you know, turning whatever that fuel is into heat 
isn't nearly as cost-effective as fossil fuels, which meant that if you were forced to use these other things, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do them and we'd have a lot less stuff. And so once you get, it just makes kind of obvious what should be obvious from the beginning when people talk about a forced government transition, which is it's not a transition. If it was an evolution from something worse to something better, they wouldn't need to force it on everyone because they need to force it on everyone. It's a transition in the sense of a regression. It's that they want us to go from something that this whole industry that cost effectively provides energy to billions of people to just these a bunch of crackpot schemes that somehow a bunch of government officials are going to make work. And that's that's the scary part of it because you take like the green energy sources are completely uncompetitive when they're not subsidized or mandated. So you take an inferior technology, these technologies have been around for hundred plus years, you take inferior technologies and then they're imposed by government. So imagine how inferior technologies imposed by government compared to superior technologies uh, developed by free people on a market. Like there is no, it's like the US versus Venezuela. It's like, there is no, that is a scary comparison to think of AOC limited by the worst energy technologies. That's that's what the Green New Deal is. AOC, it's the worst people dictating the worst technologies. Seems like they're winning though. It's just the scariest thing ever, at least for yeah. the narrative battle. This is why no, they're definitely winning the narrative battle. I mean, the Texas thing is, is a really important one. I mean, it's, it's now I, I was happy with that because I had quite a bit of influence in that, but you just see the lengths people will go to. Uh, and this Texas has a lot of detail that we don't need to get into all the details of it, but just the kind of obvious thing, if you look at what happened, is that for many, for most of many crucial days, when it was super cold, the wind was not blowing and the sun was not shining enough to provide any appreciable amount of Texas electricity. Whereas when the wind had been blowing and the sun had been shining the week before, wind in particular provided half of Texas electricity. So it went from like half to almost nothing. And so what does that show is you cannot rely on what I call the unreliables. You can screw around so that you, you make everyone else work around them. It's just like if you had a bunch of like, you had an unreliable employee from your family and you wanted him to like get as much work as possible, you could say to the other workers, okay, when, when Luke comes in, I'm getting this because there's an incompetent guy from Luke on the office that reminded me of this. Uh, <laughs> but like when Luke comes in, like Oscar, you stop your work. Like, yeah, you can come up with a stupid scheme like that where when this guy decides to show up, everyone has to stop. So you're like, oh, Luke worked X number of hours a week. But that's a really dumb idea. And in any case, you can't rely on Luke in the future. And yet the whole energy thing is like, okay, let's rely on Luke in the future. That's like the whole plan. And when Texas shows this can't happen, their whole focus is, oh no, wait, uh, like there weren't frozen, the, the wind turbines didn't need to freeze. Like you, they didn't necessarily, if we had winterized and they wouldn't have frozen, but the wind only half at most of the wind turbines were frozen and they weren't working mainly because there was no wind. So the main thing is they're unreliable. So it's like saying, oh, well, Luke, like we don't have to worry about relying on Luke in the future because like he had car trouble that day. And it's like, no, whether he has car trouble or mm. not, he is completely unreliable. And yet you look, this got twisted so much where it's like, oh no, nothing went wrong with wind because we weren't even expecting wind to work. But the whole point is our whole policy is expecting wind to work in the future. So it's just this totally dishonest thing where it's like, oh, Luke didn't fail. Like either he had car trouble or we didn't even expect him to come into work. So he didn't fail. Oh, and now we have a hundred percent Luke policy in the future. And there, and AOC has the goal to go from, this is why we need a green new deal. 
And she describes it as infrastructure, which is a nice euphemism. She's like, oh, this is, you ignored infrastructure. That's why we need a Green New Deal. But the Green New Deal infrastructure consists almost exclusively of wind turbines and solar panels. And just one other point about this is that whole movement is very anti-nuclear. Like that's the elephant in the room. If you cared about emission, CO2 emissions and any kind of actually emissions, that nuclear is the only thing that, that can at all cost effectively produce this electricity, at least on a global scale. And it's mostly opposed by today's Democrats. And today it's so criminalized, like to the point where it's so hard to build anything. And it's in fact, so hard to keep these things running because solar and wind get so many subsidies at nuclear's expense that we're having a record number of shutdowns of nuclear plants this year. So think about this. Everyone says the world is ending from CO2. Nuclear is by far our leading source of non-CO2 electricity. And instead of building it up, we're shutting it down. So if that doesn't show, this is not a this is not a movement that is sincerely concerned about the things it claims to be concerned about. It's it's con, it's actual concern is just stopping human. I mean, the, I think the leaders is stopping human activity. Like the, the philosophical leaders, they just want to stop human impact and really have the human race regress to a more natural state. And then I think the a lot of the other people. Uh, the kind of more political people, they want power and they love the, they love the idea that human beings left free are causing a catastrophe that only they can, they can fix. And then there is some like AOC is an interesting mixture because she, she loves that. But I also think she is somewhat scared out of her mind because she is such a product uh, of the culture. But on the other hand, she's not exactly, I wouldn't say she seems too open to uh, arguments on the other side. It's a product of the fiat economy growing up in. The what? We need to, we need to, the fiat economy, the fiat standard. Is safe, well, there's like the fiat, fiat economy, but yeah, well, but I would put it as um, fiat education. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, fiat is so, education falls under the fiat economy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. He would think of it that way. And I, I agree entirely, but it's, you know, this is an interesting thing because even m- most people who agree with me on fossil fuels probably wouldn't agree with me that I don't think there should be government education, but you just think government education means government decides what ideas are true and false. That is the biggest violation of free speech in our culture, like bar none. So the government, like as soon as you say, hey, oh, the government, now if you had a voucher system, you know, okay. That ultimately the government is going to engage in, in thought control because it has to decide who gets the vouchers. But it's, it's a lot, it was a lot better than what we have now. But what we have now is just the government decides what ideas are true. And so smart, these smart kind of activists, they just infiltrate the governments and they decide, oh, well, every young person needs to learn about climate change, which means they need to learn that fossil fuels are bad. They need to learn nothing good about fossil fuels. And then, of course, there's the whole, so there's the educational system, so-called, and then there's government-controlled research, and people think, oh, isn't it going to be great? We're going to have research free of the tyranny of the dollars. But no, government gets to decide what is important research and what isn't. Somebody has to make these value judgments, and if free people don't make them with their own money, it means the government makes them. So what did the government decide? There's a great anecdote uh, by Freeman Dyson, which in my next book I use, it's not in my book that's available now, but my book that'll be available late this year, probably. He, you know, he talks about how when the U.S. government was starting to study CO2, he wrote them a letter and he has he shares the letter. So if you look this up, I'm sure you can find it. And he says that he, he says, well, if you're looking at the impacts of CO2, 
you definitely have to look at the positive impacts on plant growth because those are far, those are definitely there. They're very significant and they may be much more significant than the climate impacts. And he points out, nobody paid any attention because they, they just decided, no, our per, we're trying to figure, not figure out, but we're trying to really establish that CO2 from fossil fuels is causing a catastrophe and different people had different agendas. It might've been some nuclear people or, and then later wind and solar people, they wanted something against fossil fuels. There's the environmental movement, which just wants something against any industry, but whatever it is, it's that government control of research allowed a group of anti-human, mostly anti-human people, and then sort of opportunistic business type people to totally manufacture the whole corrupt system that led to AOC. I mean, that that's yeah. like, she is a total product of what you could call fiat research and fiat uh, education versus a free system where it's competitive, right? So it's, then you have different people have to compete. They get to compete in research. They don't get to establish themselves. And then you have educational opportunities competing to offer a good education at a low price that parents choose among. So if we didn't have fiat research and fiat education, we would not have this anywhere near what's happening today in terms of indoctrination. Yeah, I think a, a future with megafloor is a really interesting one that What's I would that? like. You know, megafloors floor, like, like plant growth. Oh, megaflora. That's getting back. Yeah. Well, yeah, the dinosaurs. You know, they were big because, in part, because they had a lot of CO two. Uh, you know, they right. couldn't have existed very well on today's CO two uh, levels. No, back to so going back to like Nur and. The hypocrisy there, and proving that um, these people really don't care about reducing CO two emissions. The, le- again, the leaders, at least, all about the leaders. Yeah, and the there's an example. Bitcoin got picked on. Uh, some I forget who. Some blue chip journalist uh, tweeted the Bitcoin fund was was up, and people reporting it how much is being used to mine bitcoin and just some random journalist i don't even know if she's a journalist blue check but she she took random pictures of uh bitcoin mining operations from around the world i know for sure one is in upstate new york and, and i'm pretty sure none of them were actually in california and she tweeted out pictures of these mining operations uh replying to somebody complaining about bitcoin's energy use and she was like rolling blackouts here in california people are are dying of heat strokes in the summer uh, and these Bitcoin miners are taking energy away from these people when they need it most. And it's like, number one, the mining operators aren't in California. They're, they're not competing with the energy that Californians are <laughs> at all. Number one. And number two, you have rolling blackouts in California because they decommissioned nuclear natural gas uh, power plants without plans to to replace that energy generation. Like so, it has nothing to do with Bitcoin. It has to do with the the idiocy of your state government not planning to replace energy generation that was decommissioned. But all they see is like Bitcoin mining consumes energy. Uh, we have blackouts here, therefore Bitcoin mining is taking energy away from us when we need it most. Well, I, I am a little glad that they're picking on Bitcoin because uh, it's nice to have some, like I'm getting more and more allies in the Bitcoin community. And it, it's nice because it's it's it, like the, the value of Bitcoin is not the most self-evident value to people. So you really have to explain the value of Bitcoin. You need to explain the value of energy and why it is right uh, to use energy to improve our lives 
even if it has some kinds of, of, of side effects. And in part of that, the side effects are hugely overstated and then the benefits are hugely uh, understated. But yeah, there, there's not, there's not, a, it's not like, I mean, would the same journalist tweet out pictures of all the fossil fuel mines that are used to make these unreliables? And, and you know, are, are they tweeting out stuff about the unreliables causing the, the issue? So, I mean, Bitcoin, this is pretty common sense, you know, it's a cost game. Like you need low cost electricity. Nobody's, I live in California. Nobody's coming to San Diego gas and electric and trying to mine Bitcoin here and certainly not at the high demand time. So what's happening with the blackouts and the rolling blackouts and brownouts is it's during the high demand times that our lack of controllable electricity uh, bites us in the ass here. And especially if it's a regional thing like it was last summer, where we don't have these enough controllable electricity, and then our neighbors are more and more using these unreliables, and so we didn't we didn't contract for enough reliable electricity. Interestingly, you know now we have contracted for a bunch of fossil fuel electricity in California this summer because because uh, they don't want a debacle like last time, and the environmental groups are protesting, but they're not protesting too loudly because they don't want to acknowledge like if you want reliable electricity, obviously you can't use wind and solar. And they're shutting down, they shut down San Onofre, which is fairly near where I live. And then they're shutting down Diablo Canyon, uh, another great power plant in California. So it's, it's yeah, you can, all, it's, you can learn a lot about whether people are at all acting consistently with their stated objectives. And if their stated objective is to protect human well-being from climate catastrophe, then the opposition to nuclear is one of the biggest get giveaways that that is not the goal. And so it should question, is there a climate catastrophe? And above all, are they concerned about human well-being? No. Somebody I wrote about a letter last week is one of the like leaders of some Marxist pod thing. It's called Trap House or something like that. He quotes oh, Chopo Trap House. Is that what it is? Yeah, something that would yeah, I think it's super popular. I, I've never seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's very, very popular, I believe. I've never listened to it either. But he quote tweeted that tweet that 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 blue check sent out that made no sense at all. And said we should predator drone each and every one of these mining operations. <laughs> they like literally want to bring physical harm uh, to people, Bitcoin miners specifically, without understanding the whole context of the situation. Yeah. It's very critical. I, I mean, I just on a personal note. I'm ha- so I've been working on a book for the past two, two and a half years. And I just, I finished the manuscript and so I'm editing it in the next month and a half. And so one thing I'm, ex- it's been fun to work on, but I'm excited being done with it uh, because I, I have a lot more uh, of a platform now than I did several years ago. And I'm going to have some time to just debate these people. And I mean, I just think there's so much potential to just like getting in debates with people and just, just showing because they just don't have any answers to this stuff. And when I used to debate, I would do well for sure. But I, I, I mean, I'm much clearer about all the issues now than I was five, let alone 10 years ago. And I've really pushed on all these issues and they just don't have, there's just no way you can really believe in, well, even climate catastrophe, I don't think you can intelligently believe in, but let alone green energy as the solution to climate catastrophe. Like somebody who believes both of those things, who believes that fossil fuels are making the climate literally unlivable in the near future. And that the, the best and only way to deal with that is mostly unreliable solar and wind electricity. Like that is, I, I there may be little details that I'm wrong about, but I am hundred percent sure that narrative is wrong. 
time as well. Thank you for championing this narrative and common sense. And that's something I've been saying on this podcast and the other one I host that's more Bitcoin focused, Tales from the Crypt, is like we need adults, strong men and women to start standing up and pushing back against this because it's nonsense. It's actually it's actually extremely dangerous if if these ideas permeate and forward. And they should check out, I don't know if I mentioned, but they have a website called energytalkingpoints.com. And that is, I think that's particularly valuable for people if you want to start championing this, because it has like very bite-sized Twitter length points on an increasing number of issues. I was just reading a new book today that's come out by uh, someone who's friendly to this position. And he used like at least 12 of the energy talking points. And I thought, oh, this is great. Like I want people using these all the time. So if, if I really, I, we definitely do need more champions. And that people might check that out as a resource because I think that that's designed to it's designed to convince new people, but also to help to empower champions with all the facts and all, all the arguments about every little basically every detail of this that you could imagine. Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's a that's uh, that's what made me start the conversation off with the green energy jobs is your little specifically um, somebody asking, won't Joe Biden's energy plan create green energy jobs offset millions of lost jobs in the fossil fuel industry? Right. I'm just going line by line, like, no, we actually already have an example of this in Germany. Uh, they've tried it for the last two decades and it just <laughs> doubled the cost of electricity and reduced the reliability significantly. That's like, yeah. So thank you for that as well. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Uh, I know it, we only have 10 minutes left here, but and this is a Bitcoin and oil and gas podcast. And I think to highlight one of the, the points that you always champion is that we should. Uh, try to be as efficient as possible and, and make sure using energy to, to make things better and, and push us forward technologically and, and, and to progress uh, from an economic standpoint. Like I think Bitcoin mining, especially using stranded uh, energy sources that would otherwise be wasted, um, is a great way to, to really uh, bring that and that into fruition. Like, so what we're doing on the oil and gas field using gas would otherwise be flared, literally just set on fire and set into the atmosphere cost. Like it costs these producers money to, to do this. We can instead pipe that gas to a, to a generator and use that generator to generate electricity to power miners to, to make Bitcoin the hardest as man has ever come into contact with. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm all, I'm all for it. You know, so I'm, what's that? Oh, sorry. I think I, we just ha- we oh. just had a no. I was laughing in affirmation. I, I like I like the hardest asset man has ever come into contact with. I like that we've created this asset that's that's in many ways better than gold. That, that's very cool. So you know, I'm not I'm not. I mean, I'm very enthusiastic about that. I would just say I'm very enthusiastic about the aim of Bitcoin. And in general, I have I have nothing but a positive opinion. But I'm not an expert uh, on it like you or like Safedinas or something like that. But I would just say that it's very noble the idea of giving people a secure currency that is secure from the arbitrary manipulation of other people who can just have the power to counterfeit. I mean, let's just be serious. What does it mean to print money? Like that just means is this just legalized counterfeit. You just make up new bills and you give them to yourself or you give them to people that you like. That is basically what the government has the power to do. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of arguments about, oh, well, it's efficient and it's necessary. And I don't believe any of those practical arguments, but we know for sure you know, I'll bring back my $100 trillion bill here. Like we know for sure that this practice of legalized counterfeit or legalized inflation, we know that that can have absolutely catastrophic consequences. And and 
I should say there's a parallel with inflation or with energy, which is that we had crises, very related, we had crises of both in the 1970s. Uh, and I, I was born in 1980, so I didn't live through them, but I've read about them uh, thoroughly. And we, it's, we're, I think we're far enough away from it where it's not top of, I mean, it's far from top of mind for people. And there's just really no concept of what an energy crisis or what an inflationary crisis is like. Now we're starting to get it with the blackouts, uh, but you know, an inflationary crisis, I mean, that you just think about, I'll just use my own example, but like I think about, I've worked really hard to make X amount of money and to support myself and to support people I care about. Like, like I've built up a lot. And what inflation can do is it can devalue the hell out of that very, very quickly. Like that can just disappear, let alone the other kind of macro effects. I mean, you think about somebody in Zimbabwe who was, you know, worked hard to build up a nest egg in the Zimbabwe currency. And then it's inflated where there's a, such a thing as a hundred trillion dollar bill. Like a hundred trillion dollars is basically like more than the GDP of the entire world. So just to give you a sense in US dollars. So that is like, this is a terrible thing that there's a terrible kind of threat that we should be aware about that we're not nearly aware enough about because it's it's distant because people say, oh, we've got modern monetary theory, got all these things. Don't worry about it. There's not going to be inflation. But like, Definitely, it's great in my view if people explore the realm of private currency and Bitcoin is the leader in that. So I think that is a great use of energy to figure out a way to give uh, private currency and then all of these other amazing kinds of transactions where some arbitrary person can't intervene. In fact, this whole phenomenon of you know, Bitcoin and the blockchain and stuff like this could and likely will save a huge amount of freedom. Uh, in the world in many, many realms. So I think that's a great, that is a great use of energy. I do as well. I do as well. I, I love Bitcoin. And I think this is a pretty heady idea that I have. So we're actually going to have produce, replace central banks, not in the sense that we determine uh, the monetary policy of Bitcoin or some interest associated with it, but by the sense they replace the Fed window the you know the, the way in which money is produced and distributed in the current monetary system it opens their window to the primary banks the primary dealers they get first access to the capital after they produce the, the monetary goods and then it flows from there now that's going to move to the bitcoin mining layer which is going to be dominated by energy producers because they're going to have the cheapest of energy um like we are pretty confident that oil and gas producers are going to be particularly in North America, are going to be some of the largest miners in the end of the decade. Um, and you're going to have a transition from a fiat monetary system to an energy-backed monetary system and that starts with energy uh, companies and, and, and involves uh, on the Bitcoin mining layer and above. Um, and this is going to have profound effects throughout society. Again, you mentioned the, the, uh, the positive externalities that come with a, a private currency winning against a centrally controlled currency. Um, but in, in terms of energy production, and we've already been touching on it, like Bitcoin or miners going out and uh, basically bootstrapping uh, uh, these projects, particularly in renewables and how it naturally by by being the last resort, creates more energy reliant reliance of the like you, you have more reliable energy sources, right? Because you always have this demand from Bitcoin mining. Like it's going to help bootstrap uh, a energy generation that far exceed what we'll ever need a peak demand 
be if we ever need energy some crazy climate event or something like that bitcoin mining will will uh, guarantee that it will be there when we need it most and then you talk about the incentives second or second and third order effects from that too like beginning once it's integrated throughout the energy industry it's going to create this high incentive to secure our grid, which are terribly here right now. If your grid goes down, you're not able to hashes to mine Bitcoin. Like you, you're going to lose out on a lot of revenue. So you're you're highly incentivized to make sure your grid's as secure as possible. Yeah, it's exciting. So I mean, I don't really have specific. I mean, I can't validate that for myself. It sounds plausible. I mean, I guess emotionally, with with you know, just secure digital technology in general. So not just Bitcoin. Like it's very exciting to me what's going to happen with communication because I think we're at a really interesting point where, you know, many of the leading sort of open communications platforms like Twitter and others are there's a whole big subject, but they don't really, I don't think they really have an intelligent idea at all of how to manage content. And I do think you need some sort of uh, content policy. And by the way, I'm in this. People can look up, if you look up thoughtful.community, that's a company that I co-founded. So I'm sort of in the intellectual um, software or platform space myself. But if you just look at like what's going to happen, I think, is there's going to be some sort of, this is not what I'm working on, but I think someone else will work on, you know, really good secure alternatives that can't arbitrarily be stopped by Amazon or by Facebook or by Twitter. And I think those will definitely win in the end. Because you just think about like my situation on Twitter what do I have? Maybe 47,000 followers. And look, Twitter is great. I'm grateful to them for providing it. I don't take that for granted. I don't think it's, it should be controlled by the government. Uh, but nevertheless, I am scared as hell of their content policy. I think it's very arbitrary. I think anyone who thinks that it's good to promote Joe Biden's jobs claims as science officially has really bad judgment. And so I'm ex- just excited by you know secure digital technology where we can insulate ourselves from the arbitrary decisions of all kinds of people especially government, but also non-governmental. And so I'm just very excited to see, you know, Bitcoin and these other technologies develop. It's built on Bitcoin right now. This is the Sphinx chat that's built on Bitcoin's second layer, the Lightning Network. You're literally chatting using Bitcoin, like you're sending messages across the Lightning Network protocol uh, on Sensel. And actually, if I post episode details from the crypt, as well as Gamcast, which I'm now thinking about doing, uh, people listen to this podcast uh, via the Sphinx chat app, which is possible as well. It's a chat app and a podcast player to stream me Satoshi's directly for each minute list. Uh, if you were to give me a Lightning Network public node, I could actually siphon off some of the Satoshi's to you for, for providing value to the conversation. And this is all done over RSS feed. I just put a Lightning node public key in my RSS feed. It gets out there and up by these places. Uh, and people are able to send me value in an honorable fashion. Well, if you email me how to do that, it sounds very fun to do. So it sounds fun to try. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll do that. Alex, we're at the hour mark here. Thank you for joining me. This has been a, an incredible discussion. I think people are getting a lot of value out of this. And thank you for what you're doing in the public eye. You're, you're a fight that, that many many men and women stray, stray away from, shy away from. Um, but I think we need more. Alex Epstein's in the world. So bolding people. Thanks a lot. If anyone wants to contact me, just go on Twitter. I have open messages. So feel free to reach out that way. All right. Thank you guys for joining. Enjoy the rest of your day.